If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. If you delve into the history of spying, you might realise that there's a surprising amount of crossover with the world of show business. Stardom has massed spies and agents for centuries, allowing them to go about their business in plain sight, taking advantage of disguise and utilising the networks and access offered by fame. Historian Christopher Andrew joined us recently to discuss his new book, Stars and Spies. Co-written with Julius Green, it explores the long-running links between the intelligence services and the entertainment industry. Putting the questions to Christopher was our digital editor, Eleanor Evans. The crossover between show business and espionage might seem to some uh, slightly incongruous as one lives their lives ostensibly in the shadows and one seeks publicity. But your your new book with uh, Julius Green explores this symbiosis that exists. And I wonder if we could start by hearing a little from you on this phenomenon. Well, absolutely. It's an apparent contradiction, isn't it? Because spies have to live in the shadows and stars aren't stars unless they're in the uh, the limelight. But when you look at it more closely, of course, uh, in fact, they require the same kind of skills. If you join MI6, our foreign intelligence service, or MI5, the security service today, you can't admit that you've done it. You have to pretend to be something else. So it's unsurprising that uh, if we look back uh, quite some time, we can see uh, stars and spies with the same kind of skills. And sometimes stars make really good spies. And sometimes spies make, after they've finished being spies, really good stars. 
Indeed. And your book explores so many individual stories that explore um, this symbiosis. Um, and I wonder if we could start by talking a little more about the, the time span that you both cover in the book and where the where the shape of the book came from. Right. Well, I mean, the, the book goes back a little bit to almost the first spies and almost the, the first um, uh, stars. And one of the continuities through it is the royal family. I mean, Queen Elizabeth II, when she opened the Olympics uh, less than a decade ago, she chose to be accompanied by Britain's most famous spy. And Britain's most famous spy is, of course, not a real individual, uh, but uh, a fictional character, James Bond. Now, if we go back more than a thousand years, we get to Alfred the Great. Now, Alfred the Great was, so far as we know, uh, the British monarch, English monarch in those days, who was best at being a spy and also best at being an entertainer. So when he wanted to know what the Danes were up to, because they were just in the process of almost conquering him, he dressed up as a minstrel and he went into their court. And of course, they were only too glad to have wandering minstrels go in and amuse them. Never occurred to them that he might be the King of England. So he listened to their plans, and the story goes, and it's a reasonably reliable story, he knew what they are up to next day, and he won the battle, and that's why we nowadays speak English and not Danish. It's a great story, and it's um, brilliant to think of a royal in, dis in employing that disguise. But what struck me as well, um, you talked about the royal family, and throughout a lot of these stories, is it fair to say there's a crossover for, for in many cases that the people with the power, i.e. the royal family, are the people with the power to be patrons of both theatre and then who can run their own intelligence as well? Oh, ab absolutely. And I mean, the details are in the, in the book begins with Queen Elizabeth I, because it tends to be forgotten that in the 1580s, two things happened to England that nobody had expected for the past thousand years. One, we become the world's best at theatre, Marlowe and Shakespeare, among names that come to mind. And secondly, we also become best at intelligence, and not, not simply spies, but also at code-breaking. Actually, our code-breaking was better, and I'm not exaggerating, in the 1580s than it was in the year 1900. And what makes the difference is that Queen Elizabeth I is passionately interested in both theatre and intelligence. Far more plays are put on at court, some of them by that fellow Shakespeare, than under any previous and most succeeding uh, British uh, monarchs. But secondly, she sees her intelligence chief, Sir Francis Walsingham, every day. And the very last portrait of her reign, the so-called rainbow portrait, is unlike the portrait of, I think, any other monarch in the history of the world. It's she is portrayed exactly as she wanted to be, so she still looks about uh, 29. But her cloak has two symbols on it, eyes and ears. What does that mean? It means, don't even think about it, traitors. My boys, and it was not an equal opportunity profession then, can hear everything you say and see everything you do. And Mary, Queen of Scots, failure to realise that meant that you got bumped off. 
Right. So it's a court, it's a world in which espionage is becoming increasingly more important. And you me- you mentioned him a few moments ago, Christopher Marlowe. He is one who straddles um, these two worlds as they're evolving in 16th century. What can you say about um, Kit Marlowe's activities? Well, uh, Marlowe went, um, sorry to boast, to my college in Cambridge, Corpus Christi College, Cambridge. And we can pinpoint, um, we think, because no official document survives, although there's plenty of evidence that he was a spy, the very moment that he became a star, a, in the sense of playwright, uh, the very moment that he became a spy. Because one of the records that survives in the college is a so-called buttery book. And what does the buttery book tells you? It tells you how much students were spending on food and drink. And in 1585, the amount that he is spending on food and drink suddenly doubles. And I think that's no doubt uh, the point at which he starts getting uh, paid by Sir Francis Walsingham to go off and doing spying as well. But the, the other thing which is only just beginning to come clear is how much Shakespeare learnt from him when espionage is, is concerned. Um, there's pretty good evidence, uh, increasingly discussed, that uh, Shakespeare, at the beginning of his career as a playwright, 1592, collaborated with Marlowe, who was just about the same age, but didn't have long to go because he was going to be bumped off a a year later. So in the latest new Oxford Shakespeare, uh, edited by very sober and uh, reliable scholars, if you look up Henry IV, part one, part two, part three, it says, Henry IV, part one, part two, part three, by William Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe. Shakespeare is the first great writer in English history who uses the word intelligence to mean secret uh, intelligence. Um, There's a Marlowe uh, link with Shakespeare there, which has been too little noticed until very recently. Absolutely. And you, you write about Hamlet as well. Many people will, will be familiar, I'm sure, with the, this world of spies and intrigue that Shakespeare presents in that play. Well, of course, what is very ironic is that the very moment when Hamlet is produced for the first time, uh, we do actually uh, have a spy, John Darland, uh, at the court of Christian IV, uh, the king of, of Denmark. He was the favourite lutenist, uh, lute player at the court of uh, Christian the, the, the Fourth, And so just like uh, uh, King Alfred at the court of um, uh, the Danes um, a thousand, well, 600 years uh, earlier, he's able to wander in and out and is extremely useful. But uh, Hamlet, yes, the whole thing is, is organised uh, really around espionage. Everybody is spying on everybody else. And then there's the play within the play uh, when... You know, there's the reenactment of uh, the killing of uh, King Hamlet. And uh, that it, it, it itself, um, it's often forgotten, uh, inspires uh, the most successful detective story writer of the 20th century, Agatha Christie. Um, and the play with the, in, in the play um, uh, gives the title 
uh, to the play which is still being performed in the West End even as we speak. And, and that's a great example of, of the symbiosis. Um, and is it fair to say that uh, during the reign of Elizabeth I, so much of this intelligence focuses on unearthing so-called popish plots? And if I can move us forward slightly in the timeline, there is also a key popish plot uh, then at the beginning of the 17th century, um, which which it goes unnoticed. What What's at play there? Well, um, the, um, uh, the 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 popish plots, uh, of course, the uh, the key one, as it would have seemed to the Jacobeans, uh, is uh, actually uh, Guy Fawkes Day, the um, uh, the gunpowder plot, uh, the the gunpowder plot, which after all comes extremely close to success, is a good example of the difference that it makes if you have an efficient or an inefficient uh, intelligence. Um, a service. So, you know, the the one can see how after the death of Queen Elizabeth I, standards slipped. I mean, they'd been interviewing this man who had, uh, of course, hidden all the explosive uh, beneath the um, uh, the House of Lords more than enough to blow up uh, the House of Lords and just about everybody in it. And he gave his name as Johnson. And uh, they began to wonder if that was his real name. But they had been interrogating him, and I'm not making this up, for three days before the interrogators uh, thought to look inside his pocket. And then they found the <laughs> correspondence addressed to Guido Guy, Guy Fawkes. So the difference between uh, Elizabeth I, who was really, really good at intelligence, and James I, who was really, really bad at uh, intelligence, uh, makes a huge difference. Right. So um, if, if standards have slipped then since Elizabeth I, who was a obviously a key player, a key figure in the evolution of espionage uh, and a woman, um, I'd like to turn to another woman in your account, Afra Ben, who, again, she's skipping us forward a bit in the timeline, but um, I'd love to talk about her activities because it feels like such a perfect um, example of these two worlds meshing. Um, uh, Afra Ben um, is, as we both know, just extraordinary. But it's worth remembering that for three centuries, um, uh, she was a forgotten individual. So she was famous in her own lifetime, uh, the Restoration of the 1660s and 1670s. But um, she was regarded as too rude uh, to um, have her plays appeared on stage. So virtually no mention of her, except a few expurgated items in the 18th century, and no mention of her in the 19th century. And it's actually not until the 1960s that she starts becoming famous again. So this woman, who was an unperson in the history of uh, British literature and British drama in the 18th and 19th century, is now taught at every self-respecting uh, English course in every self-respecting um, British university. But it's an extraordinary story because she, unlike Marlowe, uh, becomes a spy before she becomes a world-famous writer. And we can now tell that during her year as a spy, she was actually making up all the reports. Uh, but uh, what that gave her the example to do was extraordinary creative writing. And then she turns the skills that she had used as a completely bogus uh, spy into becoming Britain's you know, first woman to make a successful career as a writer. And apart from the poet laureate Dryden, uh, 
she has more plays performed at court, the court of Charles II, that is to say, than any other British writer. And not to reduce in any way her writing abilities and her accomplishments. Um, She's also, it's planned to use her as a honey trap. And I wonder if we could talk about this idea of um, females female spies being employed as uh, honey traps, what that term means and how, how it might have in, impacted this history. Well, you can, uh, you know, one of the ways that um, uh, it's possible to suborn other people um, is uh, by paying them. Uh, actually, there's, uh, the, the FBI has a helpful little acronym, which is the four different ways uh, that you can recruit people to spy for you. Um, Mice. M is for money. You pay them to spy to you um, if they're working for somebody else. I, ideology. Uh, so, you know, the, the KGB recruits some, a minority of British communists to spy for them because they have ideological sympathies. C is for compromise. Well, how do you compromise people? Well, you can compromise um, people in all kinds of ways, but if you uh, compromise them financially, it can take years. If you compromise them sexually, it can take, uh, you know, about half an hour. And so that is the easy way to to do it. Um, Ego at the end, of of, of course, um, um, also helps. If uh, the seductor or seductress tells uh, the person who is being uh, compromised that they're extremely attractive, uh, that appeals to their ego as, uh, uh, as, uh, as well. So it's pretty difficult to believe, uh, given the period of time, you know, uh, when women weren't um, uh, recruited if there was a man available. But of course, um, uh, seducing uh, the head of the son of the head of Cromwell's intelligence service, who had taken flight to, to to the Netherlands and was heterosexual, was a job that was not possible for a man. So it's possible to see uh, how they would have chosen Afrobane to do that. And in the time that Afrobain is uh, is around, is is active, there's also the court of Charles II, which does present an opportunity for um, subterfuge with his love of theatre and these two worlds again coming together, presenting opportunities. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I don't think there's um, uh, anybody uh, who equals Afrobain for um, uh, having begun her career as a spy and then secondly becoming... Well, I think it would be fair to say that nowadays uh, she has a better reputation than any other uh, dramatist from the uh, English Restoration. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But he forged a map, a so-called Nazi map, entirely bogus, with an equally bogus master plan for the Nazi takeover of the whole of South uh, America. And this was passed on to Franklin D. Roosevelt, the President of the United States, not normally a man who's easily fooled. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. So there's also this um, aspect of um, theatrical censorship. How does this um, how does this come about, and what what impact does this have on the the um, symbiosis between espionage and uh, theatrical? Well, uh, first of all, it has an enormous impact. Um, theatrical censorship, there being no film industry, of course, at the time, um, begins in 1737. And what theatrical censorship, which at the beginning of the 20th century, the beginning of cinemas, is extended to um, uh, the uh, film as well does, is to prevent the emergence until the First World War and afterwards of the one of the most popular art forms in the modern world and across the whole world in Britain and in other places. In other words, uh, spy films. Easily the most popular film on at this very moment is the latest uh, James Bond film. But spies were pretty much censored out on the stage and uh, uh, in film until the First World War and uh, afterwards. So you know, the, this extraordinary popular art form would have emerged much earlier had it not been for censorship. That's very interesting. Um, so even if uh, that art form wasn't there as a vehicle just yet, there were other forms, there was dancers, performance, and I wonder if we could talk about um, a couple of people who... Uh, were able to harness their performances to enable them to to hide in plain sight. Uh, one is Matahari, which many of, many of our listeners may well know. Well, Matahari is a wonderfully um, and misleading example because she is, you know, if you ask um, most people what is the best known male spy in the world, it doesn't matter which part of the world you ask it in, they're going to say James Bond. If you ask them uh, the name of a female spy who's best known, they're going to uh, reply, I think, Matahari. Now, Matahari, unlike James Bond, was a real person, uh, but she was uh, what can be politely called an exotic dancer, and she specialised in upmarket striptease, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say. So you can see why uh, she, she captured uh, prurient imaginations. There are two things, now that her file has been released, and remarkably... Her file wasn't released in France until where she was shot as a spy in 1917, until 100 years later, 2017. What does it show? It shows beyond doubt that she was a spy, 
German communications intercepted that proves that. Secondly, it shows beyond imagination that she was a really hopeless spy. Um, what she's done, to her, that uh, you know, fictional character has, that she's become, has done is distract attention uh, from the fact uh, that uh, the most successful French spy of the First World War was a woman. She was also a dancer, a far better dancer. Her name was Mistinguette, and her story did not come out until after her death, because what she had achieved during the First World War, and I have quoted some documents from French uh, archives, was not revealed then. So what happened? Uh, she had all kinds of admirers, uh, to use a euphemism, uh, not simply in France, but elsewhere. And at the beginning of the First World War, she goes to the Deuxième Bureau, uh, French military intelligence, and said, um, I think it would help if I keep in touch with, she didn't say, my former lover, but that's what she meant, the Prince Hohenlohe. Now, he was a German prince uh, who was not an important part of the German administration, but he knew people who were. So she kept in touch with him, mainly in Switzerland. And in 1918, as the French archives, uh, not, I think, previously quoted in uh, books in, in Britain, reveal, Hohenlohe um, said, you're going to lose. Uh, we're going to have a, a great final offensive in the Champagne uh, area. So it was from Mistinguette, uh, the best-paid French star of the time, that um, France learned where the final German offensive, which was beaten back, was going to take place. And the same thing happens in the Second World War. Uh, the best French spy is once again a woman, uh, Josephine, Josephine uh, Baker, um, uh, American origin, but she had taken out French citizenship. And on the last day of November 2021, she is being, being given the highest honour that any French citizen can be given. Um, her body is being moved to the, the Pantheon, which has just over 100 people. And Macron, um, on that date, uh, makes a great speech uh, explaining what an extraordinary individual she is, but concentrating on her role in the resistance rather than in espionage. So all the fuss about Matahari, a tragic figure, has, I think, led people to overlook the two women who really were extraordinary stars, you know, the best paid of their time, and extraordinary spies at the same time. Matahari has led people down a lot of dead ends. Yes, right. I think I think you're right that, that there's so much of the popular image of espionage owes to imagination rather than reality, and I feel that's such a such a good example. What what is curious is that the Matahari image um, continued to influence the Russians rather more than it influenced us. Just about the last thing that the KGB did um, uh, at the end of the Cold War, before the, the Soviet uh, system itself uh, collapsed, was to try and make itself more popular by, and there's a picture in the book, announcing uh, that they were appointing a Miss KGB. In other words, uh, the world's most uh, attractive uh, female intelligence uh, officer. And you know, um, in 2010, when these 10 spies, uh, Russian spies, Putin spies, who had been under surveillance for some time and don't seem to be much good, but nonetheless very good at 
um, uh, keeping themselves out of the uh, public eye, were arrested. One of them was called Anna Chapman. And as soon as uh, she went back to um, uh, Russia, uh, she became a sort of updated Miss KGB. So something I'd like to pick up on is this idea then of disguise and transformation that is so transferable between these two worlds. Well, um, when uh, the Secret Intelligence Service, uh, better known as MI6, Prudence Foreign Intelligence Service, was founded in 1909, its first head, Mansfield Cumming, drew heavily on the theatre. I mean, we, we have described how, and he loved dressing up when he went on missions. He used the same theatrical supplier as the, um, uh, the main uh, West End uh, uh, theatres. And also, this tends to be left out, uh, you know, there are a lot of wonderful books on uh, Virginia Woolf, but they tend to be considerably more serious than she was. Uh, you know, and I can think of university courses on her, which failed to mention that she was one of the great practical jokers um, of the, uh, the the 20th century. So she went to exactly the same theatrical supplier, and she managed to board the flagship of um, uh, the uh, the Royal Navy, um, dressed as an Abyssinian prince. And where did she get uh, the beard from? She got the beard from exactly the same theatrical supplier as the head of MI6. And then, of course, during the First uh, World War, some of the station chiefs, as they're called, head of uh, um, British intelligence in foreign capitals, they include a number of theatricals, including Somerset Maugham. That's difficult now to remember. The Somerset Maugham, um, uh, before the First World War, was Britain's most successful playwright. Amazingly, at one point, 1909, I think it was, when uh, MI6 was, was founded, he had four different plays on at four different West End theatres. I think it's probably remained a record since. And then Compton Mackenzie uh, was another one. So when one's looking at the Edwardian theatre and when one's looking at the founding of British intelligence, there is a crossover that really hasn't received the attention it deserves. Well, I, I'm so glad to have read about it in your book, and I imagine many listeners will will enjoy doing so as well. Um, if we can uh, skip a little forward then to some other deception involved in another global conflict, um, there were uh, entertainment pe- uh, people from the entertainment business utilised in events uh, in efforts to bring America into the Second World War. Um, can we talk a little about Bill Stevenson's office and their use of um, performers? Well, the, the, this, this again is an area of Anglo-American relations which tends to be treated too solemnly. So the main aim of British policy in the First World War, foreign policy, was to get the Americans in. And, you know, if we hadn't got the Americans in in 1917, goodness knows what would have happened. And at the beginning of the uh, Second World War, and uh, after all, by 1940, when France had got knocked out, Britain stood alone. The main purpose of Churchill's policy was to get the Americans in. And one of the ways that was, was tried was the main British intelligence organization based in the United States, British Security Coordination, headed by William, Sir William Stevenson, who called himself later the man called intrepid. Well, not quite right. He was never called intrepid. But he got together a series of entertainers 
who were extremely good at deceiving the Americans. Now, time to just pick one example, but it is an extraordinary example, and I think it's rather difficult to beat in the history of uh, 20th century intelligence. The individual is Eric Mashwitz, who used to be uh, uh, astonishingly well-known as Britain's most successful lyricist. These foolish things, for example. And Nightingale sang in Berkeley Square, for example. But it was he who set up a forgery department for British intelligence in, uh, in North America. And what did he forge? Well, he forged a number of things. But he forged a map, a so-called Nazi map, entirely bogus, with a, an equally bogus master plan for the Nazi takeover of the whole of South uh, America. And this was passed on to Franklin D. Roosevelt, the president of the United States, not normally a man who's easily fooled. He was so outraged that less than two months before Pearl Harbor, we're talking about October uh, 1941, he gave in an address, a broadcast address to the American people, a denunciation, and he was holding it at the time, this bogus map, and saying he had absolute proof. So what did Eric Mashwitz go on to after the Second World War? He went on to become head of uh, BBC Light Entertainment. And he was so good that he was often offered even more money by independent television, so he went off to that. You know, so a career which uh, begins with these foolish things goes on to fooling on behalf of British intelligence the president of the United States um, in a way that has never been equal since, and then moves on to run uh, British light entertainment. Yes, stars and spies interact there, and I think in the most extraordinary way. Definitely. It's, it's a remarkable story. And I wonder, why do you think um, that such remarkable and, le and let's face it, um, fun, funny um, episodes to us, why do you think they have fallen out of um, this history a little and aren't as prevalent as you might think? Well, um, um, mainly because one of the things that really marks the history of um, British secret intelligence is that it was secret. You know, uh, the CIA um, was not found, of course, till 1947. But its existence was uh, open from the day that it existed. The KGB and its predecessors were all. But until 1992, the British government, uniquely amongst major governments, refused to admit that it even had a foreign intelligence service. It wasn't until the Queen's speech of 1992 uh, that um, the government finally admitted, well, everybody already knew, that there was an MI6. Now, even today, the records of MI6, though, um, Boca, who penetrates them here and there, are totally secret, even the records from before the First World War. So... Um, how was the Mashvid secret um, kept? Well, it was kept very secret at the time, but broadly speaking, because MI6 has been more successful at keeping its secrets than just about any other intelligence service. Right. Uh, and even though you have these um, layers of secrecy that still exist today, um, from the 90s, there is also the shift of, of spies, as you've already alluded to, um, with the Maxim cover and etc. Spies becoming stars in their own right and becoming public figures. What, what's happening there? Well, it's a continuing process, um, but uh, what is quite extraordinary is the way that um, all major Western, and not simply Western intelligence services, have taken to social media. And in the British case, it's just over the last year. 
It all begins with a tweet uh, by the CIA, a rather comical uh, tweet in uh, 2014. The CIA tweets, we cannot confirm or deny that this is our first tweet. Well, you know, um, a year ago, in the autumn of uh, uh, 2020, the uh, new chief of uh, MI6 began to tweet. So you know, an organization which a generation before had refused to admit it even existed now has regular tweets, and he gives his views on, uh, on James Bond. He actually preferred Sean Connery to Daniel Craig. And amongst other things, he's held a public um, quiz on which is the best of John le Carre's novels. In my view, he gets the uh, uh, the wrong uh, wrong answer, but he's entitled to disagree with it. And then, of of, of course, um, he's been uh, also having joint tweets with Stonewall. I mean, my goodness, these um, uh, these things have changed. So uh, again, if if you look at uh, GCHQ on uh, Instagram, in particular, our code breaking organisation. Now, again, that used to be completely secret. Now it sets little puzzles um, um, to uh, for you to work out if you would make a code breaker. And MI5 also has some uh, very jolly um, uh, tweets. Now, it, 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 um, rather Instagram posts. Um, not all intelligence agencies, um, now that they recognize uh, the purpose of entertainment, why do they recognize the purpose of entertainment on social media. Well, it's a way of attracting people who might not um, otherwise think of themselves as recruits. And it's a way of improving their image. But, you know, they don't all get it. Um, I don't want to pick on the CIA in particular, but, for example, the CIA uh, sends, um, uh, you know, every year it says it sends Valentine's Day greetings to its followers. Now, this year they were coded. This is the CIA's Valentine's Day message to its followers. And I quote exactly. Roses are red, violets are blue. Happy Valentine's Day from CIA to you. That was Christopher Andrew. Stars and spies, intelligence operations and the entertainment business co-authored with Julia Screen, is published by The Bodley Head and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.